0: The unmerciful judgment of God. You know, humanity has suffered from the time of the fall of Adam and Eve. Suffering is not uncommon to us. It is very common. It has become natural almost, you might say. But I said earlier in this message series, and I would say again, suffering and death are not natural, they are unnatural. They have been imposed on us as a penalty due our sin. Had Adam obeyed the command of God, we would have lived in bliss. We would have lived in the presence of our God. We could say, He is our God and we are His people. But that's not the case, is it? Death has become natural. Although it is not natural, it has become natural. And there is a life cycle which goes on and occurs in all of us. Some of us are closer to the end of that life life process than others, alright? But it's a common fact. Babies are born dying. Aren't they? The first breath you draw is one less breath you have. To draw in this life. There is a cycle. Birth, childhood, adulthood, senior adulthood. I say that in respect of my elders. And death. It's a natural cycle, though it is an unnatural event. As man was originally created in the garden, it has become natural. And if you look at this life cycle, It's the same life cycle which occurs in the life of a nation. If you look through history, you might say nations are born. They go through early childhood. They move into maturity and power. They decrease. Though they often don't realize they are decreasing, they begin to wane in influence and power. And then they die. And often they die years before Years and even decades before anyone knows it. That's a little unsettling, isn't it? If you think about the life of this nation, you might say we were born when the colonists came here. With a beautiful beginning, our forefathers wrote off the Mayflower, the bow of the Mayflower, one of the greatest treatises on human freedom ever crafted. And they came ashore, and they built colonies, and then they left the crown. They entered childhood, didn't they? And they fought a revolution, and they sought freedom. Not only freedom for themselves, but for those who would come after them. And that freedom was very specific. Though the world doesn't like to teach us in our history classes anymore, that freedom was very specific. They sought the freedom to worship God as they so chose to worship Him. And they sought the freedom from the repression of the English crown, which tried to bankrupt their colonies through taxation without representation. The childhood of this nation is well documented. It grew into a flourishing nation. And by the early 1800s had entered into world power. Though it was still not the strongest nation on the face of the earth, America had reached a point of power. She was a threat to the European nations, which had for so long held the power of the globe. And this nation struggled, as all children do as it developed, didn't it? That freedom which they had professed for all men was really for all men like them. This nation was torn asunder by the beginnings of her death. Would she live up to the ideals expressed in her founding documents? That became a great question for this nation. And it's been answered generation after generation. Some of those answers are good, some of them bad. Along the line of that struggle, to see would she reach her full potential, she became very powerful. This nation, America, has become the most powerful, the lone superpower in all the world. She's reached full maturity and adulthood. Many of the questions that were posed by our founders have been answered time and again. This is the land of the free. This is the land of opportunity. This has been the great beacon of light to the dark world. But I would say she's passed senior citizenship. Our nation is dead. Our nation now sits under the judgment of the living God. And you say, how can you know? Well, there are clear signs given us in the Bible of when a nation has died. The clearest is, that which is right is called wrong. That which is wrong is condoned as right. Romans chapter 1 clearly says that judgment doesn't come on a nation in the form of homosexuality, as one example. That's not the judgment of God. That it's coming. That is the judgment of God. Our nation now condones what is wrong and calls it right. Our nation does what is wrong and calls it right by murdering millions and millions of children to the idol of comfort and convenience. We have not only called that which is wrong right, but we've called that which is right wrong. You can be put... In great harm publicly now. Maybe not imprisoned yet. But you can be put in great harm. Lose your job, your reputation, your family. For standing up for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this nation. The day is coming. It's already being proposed and talked about on Capitol Hill. When they will censor the pulpit. When anyone who stands and preaches the truth of the Bible will be called a hate monger and liable to be imprisoned. It's already being talked about. It's not coming. It's here. Our brothers to the north in Canada already have the law. The law is being talked about among the members of Congress off the floor today. And I say, why should we be surprised? Our nation is dead. If your faith is in this nation, your God is dead. And it can die years before you know it or I know it. It can rock on as nations do. Losing power slowly until it is cannibalized by another society. If God tarries, that will occur to us. We're no different than any other land. No different than any other people. Modern history... Is something to look at, but let's look at the ancient history of a nation which God loved, Israel. It too went through a life cycle. It was born, it reached adulthood, it waned in power in its senior years, and it died long before it was carried off into captivity. This morning, children, if you're looking for the words from the pastor, these three words, just for my Baptist heritage. Deliverance, death, and destruction. I tell you, I preach one message, Carlton, with alliteration, and Aaron's not here. <laughs> Deliverance, death, and destruction. I'm going to take this passage in Hosea chapter 13 and hopefully show us the life cycle Israel went through as a nation which is applicable to the life. The life that we go through as individuals and then offer a ray of hope at the end and application. First of all, we see in this passage that God delivered the people of Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And we see that not in verse one. I skip down to verse four. He delivered them. Look what it says in verse four. The Lord your God has been your God from the land of Egypt. This is a reference from the prophet to remind the people that God has been their God. He's not just a God. He is their God. He is the God who has delivered them from Egypt. I said earlier that the nation of Israel went through a similar life cycle of all other nations, and it did. Its founding was much, was much more meager even, even than our founding father's. They had one founding father. His name was Abraham. And he had a son, Isaac, who had a son, Jacob. And Jacob's family, his sons, went off into Egypt to escape the famine which had fallen on the land of Canaan and the whole world. You know the story. They entered the, peop- the people of God entered Egypt 70 in number. And they exited over 400 years later under the hand of God as their deliverer, not a family, but families. I mean, the meager estimates, the smallest, say 630 to 50,000 people, probably more like upwards of 2 million people, left Egypt. It had to be a great nation, even in Egypt. Why? Because Pharaoh said he was afraid of the people. He was the most powerful king in all the world. What did he have to be afraid of from a little nation like Israel? But he was afraid. The life cycle had begun. They started as a family and they became families. Abraham's descendants became a powerful nation during their 400 years of living in Egypt. We see in verse 4, the first part of verse 4, God was their God even in Egypt. Israel was delivered from her slavery by God. Look what the second part of verse 4 says. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. Israel grew to early childhood and reached a point of being kicked out of the nation of Egypt. I mean, they were ready to throw them out by the time they left, weren't they? God came and spoke to Pharaoh through the mouth of his servant Moses, the stuttering, stammering tongue of his servant. And Moses said, "Let my people go and worship me in the desert." And Pharaoh said, "No." And God began to act out his deliverance. It was a violent deliverance. It cost Egypt her riches, her wealth, her livelihood. And in the end, caused her her firstborn from every house among the people of Egypt. God delivered His people. God acted as a Savior. Not only did He bring them out of Egypt, but He brought them to the Red Sea. He took them the long way around to avoid the nations which might fall on them and prey on them in the desert. The Ammonites were avoided. God moved them to the Red Sea. And then God protected them. God watched over them. Not only did He birth the nation of Israel and then deliver the nation of Israel, but He shepherded the people of Israel as a shepherd. Look at verse 5. It was I who knew you in the wilderness. Now, in The English is kind of hidden. You can't see it. But in the Hebrew, it's very clear. God says, I shepherded you in the wilderness. The Lord is often shown to be a shepherd of His people. And so we look here at this passage, and we see in verse 5 that God was a very shepherd for them. In the land of wilderness, in the land of drought, God was their shepherd. What does that mean, though? Practically, what did he do for the people? Well, as I said, he brought them to the Red Sea. And the army of Egypt, you remember, was pressing down on them from the rear. God, in the pillar of a cloud, stood between his people and that great army so that they could not be destroyed. He not only stood between the army and the people, but he parted the Red Sea. He breathed on the water and made it stand on its end. He dried the land and the people crossed on dry ground. He was a shepherd for them. He showed them the path to safety. That's what a shepherd does. Sheep are dumb. Sheep get lost. Sheep don't know which way to go. But God knows God was Israel's shepherd. He had birthed them. He had delivered them. And now He was shepherding them. He protected them. Not only did He deliver them and take them through the sea, but he crashed the sea down on that great army and buried it at the bottom of the Red Sea. God protected his sheep, his nation. He not only directed them and protected them, but he provided for them. Did he not? They went out into the wilderness, you might remember, they sang this great song from Moses of the redemption of God. What a beautiful passage that is for us in Exodus 15. And then just a couple of words later, really, the people are grumbling. Sure is hot out here. No A.C. in the desert. We were better off under the palm trees making bricks without mortar. At least there we had wells with water in them. God this. Foolish, God has brought us in the wilderness. There's no water out here. What water is out here is just cesspools of bitterness. We can't drink that stuff. We'll die. We're going to die out here, Moses. What have you done? What a fool. We could have stayed in Egypt where at least we had water. God heard their grumbling. God provided them water. Did He not? First in the lake, where he dropped the tree and turned bitter water to sweet water. Then in the rock, which flowed like a stream from the deep when Moses struck it. And then from the rock again, he provides flowing water. Now, I don't know what your little Bible story coloring book showed you. Okay? But I want you to put on your thinking cap with me. Let's take the low estimate, 600,000 people. What kind of shepherd was God? What kind of shepherd was He? He provided water from a rock that satisfied the thirst of 600,000 people. Don't get the picture of being in a cave somewhere and a little drizzle of water coming down that's not what God did I tell you when Moses struck that rock it was like when the men in the in the desert of Texas strike an oil well you know what happens black gold Texas tea we all get rich God led them to the rock and he provided a river out of that rock enough to feed our Give water to over 600,000 at least. That's the kind of shepherd He was. He birthed the nation. He delivered the nation. He shepherded them. He guided them. He protected them. He defeated their enemies. Just like a shepherd does His flock, He gave them water. And then when they got this beautiful water, they said, Oh, sure, a magician's trick, and you give us water. But what about food out here? What are you going to do when our dried meat is gone? Huh? You're going to give us anything to eat? Our bread will only last so long, genius. You've brought us out here, and now we're going to die. Let's go back to Egypt. God heard the people. And Psalm 78 says, He spoke to the windows of heaven, and they opened up. And bread rained down on the camp in the desert. Not just any bread. But wafers which David describes as sweeter than honey. Light, sweet, and filling. God said, every day I'll give you this. Six days I'll feed you. On the sixth day, gather enough for the seventh. In that way you shall be able to live in this desert. So they have water and they have bread. And you think, what a shepherd. No. Egypt said, pfft. This is a bland old cracker, dude. We want something, Moses, better than this. It's enough. We're not satisfied. Take us back to Egypt. At least there, we had dried meat and fish. God heard their grumbling. And like a good shepherd, he called to the east and the south. And every day he brought quail, and they fell in the camp ready to eat. Nobody had to kill them. They laid out there with the manna so the people could eat them. My granddad, when he preached on that passage, used to say, they, I like to think they fell plucked and bacon-wrapped, ready to cook. I don't know that they fell that way, but I know they fell knee-high. And they fell in that same thickness over the whole camp of Israel. Not an expedition party of a couple of families, but at least 600,000. God made the nation. God delivered the nation. God shepherded his people. That's what Hosea says in verse 4. You've not known any other God since the time you were in Egypt except me. I'm the one who provided for you in the desert. God is a deliverer of His people Israel. But death was certain for these people, the people of Israel. They went through their baby stage, their infancy as 70 coming into Egypt. They matured into early childhood and now they've gone through their youth and they're a full-blown nation. They reached the River Jordan and they crossed it again by the miraculous power of God. They went in to the land of the giants and they defeated them one after another until at the end of Joshua's life, he says in the end of Joshua, God has kept all his words to you. You have possessed the land which he promised to your fathers. He made them a great nation. A great nation. Not a tiny nation, but the whole land of Canaan was theirs as a possession. And they lived in fortified cities. And they dwelled in the presence of their God through the mouth of His leaders, the judges. And they turned from Him to their own way. They reached the pinnacle of their power under the man David and Solomon, their king. When God built for Himself... A, ta- a, a temple and a palace in Jerusalem was made for the king. And then the kingdom, because the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes felt they were taxed without representation, broke away from their king in the south. I told you, you know, history, history is a great teacher. They said, this isn't fair. We're sending all our money to Jerusalem. We'll make Samaria our capital. We'll break free from those tyrannous kings in the south. And the nation reached its adulthood and then its senior citizenship. You might say it's last years. They were the wealthiest, wealthiest years, yet they were the most spiritually damning years. That's what Hosea says. Look in verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. Now Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph. Ephraim the younger ruled over the house of Joseph instead of Manasseh. And when he spoke, remember he's the representative of the northern tribes of Israel. When they spoke, everyone trembled. That speaks to their greatness. They reached their zenith of power, their golden years we might say. And yet, just on the heels of that, the fact that God had given them strength among the nations, we find that Israel became an idolatrous nation. Look at 13, verse 1, part C. But he incurred guilt through Baal and died. The death of a nation can occur decades, even centuries, before they even know it. The people of Israel were a dead man walking, a dead nation walking, we might say, long before they were carried into captivity. They had been created by God, delivered by God, provided for by God, and their return to Him was idolatry. And now they're experiencing death. Israel's death is sealed in verse 3. Therefore, he says, they shall be like the morning mist, like the dew that goes early away, the chaff which comes up from the floor of the thresher, the smoke which comes out of a window or a chimney in a house. All of these parallels make you think of what? Momentary existence. The great nation of Israel on the timeline of eternity is nothing but a blip on the screen just a blip on the screen like we might say the early morning fog which when the heat of the sun oppresses burns quickly away their fate is sealed the northern tribes will not repent they will not be saved They're already dead. And now they wait for destruction. The third thing we see here in the passage is the end from verse 6 through verse 16. The largest portion, which we won't cover verse by verse, but I just want to pull out some key phrases, key points. Destruction is coming from God on the nation of Israel. They were delivered, they experienced death, and now they will face destruction. Israel's prosperity came to them. Excuse me. Israel's, prosper, uh, Israel's destruction is fixed because their prosperity has turned them from God. It's there for us in verse 6. But when they had grazed, They became full. Speaking of the time in the desert. And their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Think about that. These people are eating bread out of heaven and quail ready for the roast, which God provided. And God says once their bellies were full, they became prideful and they forgot me. How could they forget God? His provision was all around them. They had done nothing. Can I say that? More clearly, they had done nothing for themselves. God had done everything. And yet God says, "In the moments you should have been praising me, you forgot me completely." The fate of Israel was sealed by her prosperity. Destruction is not fate; It is the personal work of God. I say that and I emphasize that at the end of this message because there is a thought process in philosophy which teaches fatalistic outcomes. You've all probably heard the proverb about when a butterfly beats his wings on one side of the earth, he creates a tsunami on the other. That's fatalism. Christianity is not fatalism. Fate does not control our destiny. Not as a nation, as a church, or you as an individual. That speaks of blind chance mechanisms which bring people into situations of either success or destruction. It's whimsical. It's almost like, uh, you know... A, it's almost like any mini money mo that children play. That's what fate teaches in philosophy. That this being, whatever he might be, or she might be, just any mini money mo catch a tiger by his toe, okay, I like those people. They'll succeed. It It, it comes across, and it is. Very trite and it is not biblical. Our destiny is not in the hands of fate, it is in the hands of a personal God. And Israel's fate was in the hands of this personal God. Destruction came from God. You need to hear that. Because everything in your world today will say God does good things and Satan does bad things or bad things just happen. But the Bible says God makes darkness and God makes light. God raises up a city and then God brings calamity on that city. God does good and God brings destruction. That's what Isaiah says. That's what Hosea says right here. Their destruction, which came on them, came from God, not from fate, not from some impersonal being. It came from a personal God who had struck a covenant with them and loved them. And yet they had rebelled at every turn. And therefore he brought death and then destruction. Let's look at this destruction. God is at work through the Gentile nations who would destroy the nation of Israel. Verses 7 and 8. So I will come on them like a lion and a leopard. Beside the way I will fall on them like a bear who robs her cubs. I will tear open their their uh, breast. And there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. These four animals are the animals of judgment or destruction in the Old Testament. They're used in many passages God uses all of them here. The lion, the leopard, the bear, this unnamed beast. It shows the complete destruction which comes for Israel. And it comes not by some general force or even a Gentile nation. Who is the lion? In the passage, look at your Bible. Who is the lion? Who is the leopard? Who is the bear? Who is this wild beast? It is God. He says, I am to them like a lion, a leopard, a bear, a wild beast. Look, Assyria, which we'll talk about in just a moment, was simply carrying out the will and plan of God. God was judging His people. God was bringing destruction. God is at work through Israel's internal rebellion. If you look at verses 9 through 13... We see that the destruction came from the outside and from the inside. Look here. God destroys you, O Israel, for you are against Him and against your Helper. And then God raises a question. Where is your king? These must have been painful words. Remember Samuel? Oh, you can have a king. But he's going to tax you. And he's going to lay a heavy yoke on you. Israel had chosen a king. And now God says, where is your king? Where is your prince? Who will deliver you like all the other nations? I gave you a king. And I took your king in anger, in wrath. This is the interesting point. Because I believe it was God's will that they have a king. Because the king, even in the Old Testament, was a representative of Jesus Christ. David particularly paints the picture of who Christ is for us. God had designs on Israel having a king. Jesus Christ is the prophet, priest, and king of his people. What I'm saying to you is the destruction which God brings into your life is not impersonal. It's not fate. It's very personal, and it has a very good purpose. Even in their rebellion against God and wanting a king and God giving them a king... God uses that ultimately to paint a picture of His Son, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He had great purposes and design for them. You see this? I think He had great design for their destruction also. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Their destruction was not just external. It was internal. God says, finally, I will not show mercy. I will not show mercy to Israel. In verse 14. No more sobering words maybe can be spoken than these. My eyes find no mercy. God says that over Israel. Compassion. Mercy is hidden from my eyes. What a dreaded day. What an awful thought. Destruction has come. Not by the hand of God of an outsider not by our own doings but destruction has come on us from God himself who can oppose him who can oppose him God then says I will utterly destroy you look at verse 16 you're going to fall by the sword that's your men in war Your children will be dashed on the rocks. And your pregnant women's wounds will be ripped open and their fetuses pulled out alive to die. I don't know any other word of destruction that could be said that's more deafening. God is going to utterly destroy them. The pains of their childbirth have come on them, and they will not give birth. They will die. If this was the end of the message, well, we'd all leave fairly discouraged, I would think, right? But this isn't the end of the message, this isn't the end of the story. I want to make an application into our lives from this story. Yes. Though we are born... You see the statement? Though we were born into the death of the first Adam, which has been represented in Hosea 13, we have life and salvation through the work of Of Jesus Christ. Now, holding your place in Hosea 13, I want you to look at something really quick. Here in Hosea 13, look at it. I said deliverance, death, and destruction. When you were born as a human being, you were born into the death of Adam. We might say death, it led to total destruction. It led to total destruction. Would you disagree? In every way, you were undone. Socially, morally. In regard to God, you had no hope. You were destroyed. You're on the path of destruction, as Jesus says. Death, destruction, and deliverance. Deliverance. God has not left us without hope in this world. For though we were born in the sin of our father Adam, we now have a second Adam who is our representative, when we place our faith in him who is able to save. Look at the passage, verse 14. See if you can think about this passage and remember where it appears or when like it appears in the New Testament. It's in Isaiah 25 also. Look at verse 14. O death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Sound familiar? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there quickly and let's see the hope which we have, though we are born in death and destruction. Paul says in verse 55, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Sound familiar? Paul knew his Old Testament, didn't he? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The answer in Hosea 13 is the sting is Is in destruction for the nation of Israel. But our answer is a taunt to death. There is no victory. And there is no hope for you, death. Because the victory has been won in who? Jesus Christ. Look what it says. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is... To the fact that we all sit under the death and condemnation of God because we are sinners. And we are being daily destroyed by our actions and our attitudes and our words against that are an attack against the Holy God. The answer is that God stared down death in Christ. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He was sinless throughout his life. He kept every point in regard to the law. And then he faced death. In the eyeballs. He stared it down. And it seemed to have a victory over him. It looks like Hosea 13. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Sheol, where is your victory? And the grave on that first day said, Right here. He's behind this stone. I've won. And on day two, death stood in taunt of God. You're the great God of heaven and earth. You couldn't deliver your own son. He's still in the grave. But on day three, God said, Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and my son has not sinned. He is perfect. And the victory which comes, comes through the repression of the people through that sin, and he has defeated that repression The victory is not yours. It is Christ's. And so now we as His people, no longer in Hosea 13, we now are in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have faith in Christ, you're able to say, I was born in death, the son of Adam. I was facing ultimate and complete destruction. And yet Jesus Christ won my victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who has delivered us from sin and death through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Father in heaven.